0: Uh, today, um, I mentioned this earlier uh, in the service, but we don 't have printed bulletins today because the printer is like in three pieces back there, and there 's like several pieces that are broken that are getting flown in from somewhere so hopefully we 'll be here next week, so that was not a permanent fix. just this week, everything will be up on the screen for you um, today we 're going to be in Colossians chapter four, so if you have a physical Bible or it 'll always uh, it 'll also be up on the screen for you, maybe your phone Colossians four and then first Peter three. You know, we're walking through a series uh, entitled The Heart of Evangelism. This is based on uh, Jerem Barr's book with that same title. And we're essentially taking texts that have to do with evangelism and expositing them with kind of a theme of the heart of evangelism that Jerem brings. So as we begin uh, today, if you're anything like me, I know many of us in the room, uh, maybe even if we haven't been in church a long time, have some preconceived notions about what evangelism is. So I want to start with a question to say, when you hear the word evangelism, what comes to your mind? Many of us maybe think of people knocking on a door and saying, when the door is opened, if you die today, do you know where you would go? This is what I experienced as a child. I'm like, yes, I do. My dad's a pastor. Thank you. (laughs) I know Jesus. Jesus. Maybe you think about handing out gospel tracts, college ministries do this a lot, not a bad thing, but maybe that's what you think about the ABCs of the gospel, or a pamphlet that talks about the Roman road, how to come to Jesus. Maybe you think about vocational evangelists, people who do this for a living, this is what they are paid to do, they're trained in a specific way to advocate for the good news of the gospel. But often in our life, we think about evangelism as really like uh, boxed off or um, in its own area in our life. And just, oh, this is just a little activity we do on the side, or maybe this is just a job that somebody has over here. But I think that we would all agree that the foundational purpose of evangelism is to spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we look at this, these couple texts today, and I, I want to encourage us all to listen, try to listen away from the preconceived notions that we have of evangelism. Because often they're not the biblical explanation of evangelism. That biblical, biblical evangelism is not simply a Sunday afternoon activity or something that someone who is specially trained participates in, but biblical evangelism is an entire lifestyle of every single Christian that is called to Jesus. That each Christian is called on mission or to an evangelistic lifestyle. And that, even with that phrase, right, you may have, oh, I don't like that. I don't like what that sounds like. And it's maybe a bad picture in your mind. And I'm going to hopefully argue today that it looks different than that. It's actually not an ugly thing at, at, at all. But it is a life that is marked by grace and mercy and compassion because it is reflecting the character of God, right? So let's go ahead and turn to the text today. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5 to begin. Verse 5 says this, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Then on to 1 Peter chapter 3, this is verses 15 and 16. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. God, we come before you today for those uh, in the room who have been called out of sin and misery and into life with you. We plead today that your word will enter our hearts, that, Holy Spirit, that you would move here, that you would allow us to be shaped by your gospel each day, especially in this time. Be with us now. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You know, I grew up primarily, I was born in the 80s, I grew up primarily uh, in the 90s, and Billy Graham was like, like the token Christian, right, for me as a Baptist kid growing up. I heard a lot about him, and you know, when I thought, thought about evangelism, boom, B- Billy Graham was the first thing that came to my mind, right? So I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. Hopefully you know who he is. Only God could know the important role of this dairy farmer's son would play in world evangelism. From the humble beginnings on a farm to his decision for Christ at a local revival on the edge of Charlotte, North Carolina, to his travels around the world speaking in stadiums filled to capacity, Billy Graham has pursued a singular vision to share the love of Jesus with all those who would listen. In doing so, he has met with presidents, with kings, queens, celebrities, and everyday men, women, and children, but no matter the audience— His message still stays the same. Everywhere I go, this is him quoted, I find people, both leaders and individuals, that are asking one basic question. Is there any hope for the future? My answer is the same, yes, through Jesus Christ. In over 55 years of ministry, Billy Graham has preached the gospel message to more than 215 million people in over 185 countries around the world. And the Billy Graham Evangelist Association, which he founded in 1950, reaches out to more than millions each year still. Now often when we think about evangelism, I want to take two points away from what I just read. First thing is, when we often think about evangelism, my mind directly, a church guy, goes to somebody like this, right? Oh, that's his job, and he's really good at it. He preaches in front of thousands of people who are coming to the altar and professing faith, right? Well, God used Billy Graham in a mighty way. R.C. Sproul one time, we love R.C. in this church, right? He was asked at a conference on a Q&A time, do you think you're going to see Billy Graham in heaven? R.C. Sproul said, I won't be able to see him because he's so close to the throne room. Right? Often, even we think about this evangelistic idea out inside the Reformed faith as, oh, that's not really what we do. We just think about doctrine. Right? But even our token saint, R.C. Sproul, says, no, evangelism is at the heart of the Christian life. Right? So we think about sometimes evangelism as just things that people like Billy Graham do. right? And no doubt, they, he, God used this man mightily. But at the same time, what he said in this, this is the second thing I want to take from this, is that people, it doesn't matter if you're a leader or a normal employee, everyone has the same question in their heart, even if they're not saying it with their lips. Is there hope for the future? As a Christian, you and me know the answer to that question. The answer is yes, there is hope in Jesus. So even though at times we believe that the work of evangelism amazes compartmentalized idea that or for church leaders or pastors we do it once a year these sort of things my hope for us today is that we would see that evangelism is not only reserved for the specially called or special times in our life but in fact the theme for today is that every christian is called to live on mission for christ that every christian is called to live on mission for christ we're going to look at two things first the missional Christian. This is kind of the what we are called to do. Okay? We're called to be a missional people. The what. This is from 1 Peter 3, and then we'll go on to some 1 Peter 3 as well, and then into Colossians 4, and talk about the walk of wisdom. And this is kind of the how we're called to do this. How are we to be a missional Christian? Okay, so let's first look at the missional Christian. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, verse 15. He says this, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. I think we need to start with this idea that the language in this specific text is most often used, if not always used, in a legal system. That the word for defense in the original is, is nearly always used in a courtroom setting. If we think about in the book of Acts, when Paul goes into the courtroom to make a defense, this is the same word that is used here. Okay, So the words even surrounding this word in the lexicon all pertain to the legal system. So here, Peter, using this language, you can see that this is a serious matter that he's bringing up. That it would be a fool to walk into a courtroom unprepared. That's the setting he's setting for us. In the same way, it would be foolish for a Christian not to have a defense for the hope that is in them. So we are called as Christians to be prepared to give a reason for a hope. As I mentioned, texts like this have often turned into a justification for formal Christian philosophy or apologetics, and you can apply this text in that way. You think about people, even like many of you have read C.S. Lewis, uh, Lee Strobel, Tim Keller, R.C. Sproul. These guys are defending the faith, right? They've written books on it. Think about it. I'm going to come back here to First Peter chapter three, and while that is an OK application of the text, this text in specific, First Peter chapter three, is not written to future pastors. It's not written to future church leaders. This passage is for the normal Christian, the everyday, living in the world, working a normal job Christian. So to each and every believer, in this text, we are called to do what? To be prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in us. So going back to this idea of it being legal language, right, this text says, be prepared to make a defense, specifically that word of defense, that Peter here is bringing this general expression of defending something to say, be prepared to defend the hope that you have been given through Christ. And remember, this is a serious thing, the serious nature of this language, because we are often on trial um, Francis Schaeffer has written a lot of this in the last, well, he's passed away now, but 50 years ago, he said that we live before a watching world. And that was 50 years ago. Think about how normal Christianity was 50 years ago. And even more so now, how much does the Christian live before a watching world? But the call of this text is that in all that we do, in word and in deed, is to defend the hope of the gospel. Jerem, in his book that we're basing this um, series on, says this, Each and every one of us is always on trial for Christ. Our faith is always on trial. In our homes before our children and spouses, in our schools and colleges before our teachers, students, friends, and classmates, in our workplaces before our colleagues, bosses, employees, and customers, when we are playing or relaxing whatever we are engaged in wherever we find ourselves we are to put we are put there by god for the defense of the gospel so while you and i in the west we may never enter into a courtroom to give a formal defense in a courtroom for the hope that is in us with the same seriousness here first in first peter we are called in every part of our lives to live on mission for christ Think about the text. I'm going to bring in a couple other texts. The text from, we looked at the last couple weeks in Acts chapter 1. says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Then Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 5 says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God your Father who is in heaven. So we can see Across the biblical scope, that we're called to give a defense. And it's not just an intellectual defense. I would say it's a lifestyle defense. That we are called in word and in deed to be proclaiming the hope that is in us in Jesus. So, in 1 Peter 3, when you are slandered, not if you are slandered, but when you are slandered, the day will come those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. That even the non-Christian sees the beauty of this type of behavior. He recognizes it because it's ingrained in how God made humanity. Each and every Christian called on mission for spreading the gospel in word and in deed. So I think there's it's really helpful. You know, there's a lot of people talk about how to live in a, a missional life, right? In the journey and other places, we talk about this. And, you know, three categories, I think, are, have been really helpful for me to, to kind of parse this out. And what does this look like in my daily life now, this week? So we think about where you live, where you work, where you play. I think Chuck has mentioned this even in the last couple uh, weeks, right? Live, work, and play. And within those, I think we need to think about this. We need to think about how do we live missionally in word and in deed. Word and in deed in both. And actually, I would argue that we need to reverse those two things. We actually need to start with deed in this current culture and then move toward. When I moved to St. Louis, I noticed all of the Missouri plates, their slogan for their state is we are, is anyone from Missouri here? Raise your hand. No one is. You're not common at all to this. It was so strange to me. But it's the show me state. And I was like, show me state? Show me what? What does that even mean? Like, you're right, like I'm from New Mexico, the land of entrapment, I mean enchantment, right? Like, that. I understand that. But I go to Missouri, and it's like, the show me state, what is that? So then I ask them, like, local Missouri people, they're like, oh, well, Missourians have this culture of, I don't want to hear what you have to say. Show it to me. Prove it to me. Show me that you are honest, that you are trustworthy, that you are a hard worker. Show me. And I think... More than anything, our culture now is looking at Christianity and doing the same thing. Say, I don't want to hear. I've heard enough. Show me with your deed. Right? So I think that it really, to bring the barrier down, that's what we're called to do, to show them indeed. So where you live first. I think it's, it's, it's good for us to know the people that we live around. Maybe this is our actual neighbors, our coworkers, uh, people that go to our kids' school, Maybe you frequent a restaurant or a coffee shop to know the people where we live, right? To engage with them, to get to know them beyond the highs and bys, right? I'll tell you a funny story. I have a treadmill on our garage, and I intentionally run. I'm not trying to boast at all. It's actually kind of silly. My neighbors probably think I'm crazy. But I run with the garage door open, and I wave to my neighbors as I'm on the treadmill, and they're, like, taking their kids to school, I'm like, hi. <laughs> but it's just a practical way for me to say, hey, man, I am here. Like, my, gr- my, my, my life is open, right? But we need, to, we need to be thinking in that way, that how can our life be open to the people that just we see on a normal basis? They have to actually have laughed about that, that, that uh, me running on the treadmill and waving to them. Um, but it's an icebreaker, right? So I'm trying to do what I do. I'm just going to play into my dorkiness. Okay, so. so we think about D. That's what we do, Right? But maybe in word, right, we think about when the time comes and our people who are around us see, oh, something is different in how you treat your spouse and how you treat your kids and how you use your time. When the time comes and they say, what is that hope? Then we as Christians need to be prepared to say, it's not me. It's someone else who has saved me. That we can point them humbly to say, oh, man, I don't have it together. I follow someone who does, and his name is Jesus, right? So we are prepared in word and in deed to be able to proclaim Jesus and how we live and how we speak. Secondly, I would say in our work, so I'm going to say this broadly, okay, in vocation as a whole. So you can say you work inside of the home or outside of the home. So it doesn't mean uh, you're going to make a living somewhere. It could be maybe you're retired and the, you're working activities throughout the week. Or you're a stay-at-home mom or dad and you're, you're working in the house. So this is work as a whole. But I think that we need to see that we need to be thinking about considering other people before ourselves first, right? That, that working in an ethical, God-honoring way. Like those are some of the maybe go-tos for work. But this is what I really want us to think about this morning. That when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he said, your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So when he sends out his disciples, it's with that prayer in their mind. Make the kingdom come through my life. So, in your vocation, your normal, throughout the week, you have a lot of time that is dedicated to that. How does your work or what you do throughout the week push back sin and bring the kingdom to earth? How does it do that? What categories do you have for your vocation, whatever you do throughout the week, to bringing in restoration and healing that will be ultimately done by Jesus when he returns? Right? But here and now, he calls us not only in deed, but also in word to proclaim Jesus, right? Sometimes we'll stop at the missional life to say, well, he's going to bring restoration to the soul, to the, the relationship between God and man. And yes, that is the Christian's call to show people that they have a Savior who loves them, that they are sinners in the sight of God and have them turn plead for them to turn to Jesus. But it's bigger than that, right? It is not only the redemption, of the, re- uh, the restoration of the relationship between God and man, but it's the redemption and the restoration of all things. And in our vocations, what are we doing to push back sin and bring peace and harmony? We did an exercise in our journey group a couple weeks ago, and I went around, we went in the room and did an exercise on how each of the men's vocation did that. Right, and you know, we we laughed and we had a good time about it. One guy like works on like air conditioners, right? I'm like, man, there's going to be no bad heaven, uh, no no bad weather, and the new heavens and the new earth, right? So it's pushing that back, that discomfort, you know, and so we're trying to see how can I in my life now strive for the area in my life to bring healing and restoration, yes, to the souls of people that I work with to the souls of the people that are around me, but also to the world that God is restoring. Okay, lastly, play. Jerem in his class, uh, when we read this book, he said, whatever you love to do, do it with non-Christians. Whatever you love to do, do it with non-Christians. That God has given us this creation to enjoy, right? Right? There's many hobbies we find enjoyable, and my encouragement for you is to be doing them alongside people who are outside of the faith. C.S. Lewis, when he talks about friendship, he says the the beginning of many friendships starts like this. Oh, you love that too? I thought I was the only one. And a friendship starts. Obviously, that's not the foundation in the long run for it, but that's where it sparks right there, right? Right? In J.I. Packer's book *Evangelism and, the, and uh, the Sovereignty of God*, he says evangelism commonly begins with friendship, because people want friends. And as one who has been befriended by the Creator of the universe, when we had when we were friendless altogether, we are called to find commonality with other people, to love them in a way that points them to Jesus. Right. So those three categories, I gave you some broad examples. It'd be good for you to think about that in your own life. Live, work, and play are the three. Okay, let's go on. The second point, the walk of wisdom. This is Colossians chapter 4, verse 5. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time. We'll go on to verse 6 in a moment, but here... Paul uses this language of outsiders, referring to not someone outside of maybe the ethnic culture or whatever it may be that we could read into it, but outside of the body of Christ. Thus, a believer is called to walk in wisdom, in biblical wisdom, with those who do not profess Jesus as their king. That biblical wisdom, we've talked about this when we went back to Romans, and we saw that we're to be a living sacrifice by the renewal of our minds, right? That biblical wisdom comes to us through the renewal of the mind, through God's word, that when we immerse ourselves in biblical wisdom, our life is soon to follow. So here, Paul is calling Christians to walk in biblical wisdom, specifically with people who do not know Jesus. He says, make the best use of time So this is saying that you should redeem the time that God has given you. Ensure that you are using the time that God has given you. Remember, we said this a minute ago, even when we talk about stewardship, right? We think about, okay, um, think about stewardship or giving to the church. I always think about financial or maybe just giving my money back. But actually, it's bigger than that, right? It's stewarding the time that God has given to you for the pushing back of sin and the furthering of the kingdom. So what does that look like? Maybe giving up time and energy for those who don't know Christ, all the while walking according to the wisdom given into the Scriptures. You know, we will be tempted, and I am, as well as you, will be tempted to move away from maybe non-Christian influences at times, and we worry about the force of sin, and I think some of that is healthy, right? But at the same time, why we resist being influenced too much by the world, that does not mean that we retreat away from the world altogether. One commentator, when talking about this passage specifically, says, while resisting the wrong kind of outside influence, the Christian nevertheless needs to stay engaged with their fellow citizens to seek to win them to Christ. That this text call is to walk in wisdom alongside people who need the wisdom of the gospel that you may proclaim it in word and in deed. In Colossians 4, 6, he goes on. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So how are we to speak and act with people who are other than Christian? He says here, gracious, seasoned with salt. Not only are we to speak the message of grace, but we're to speak in a way that exudes grace. I, talk, this, I speak this, uh, talk to the nursery workers a lot about this, especially when the kids are young, right? Because often, young kids, and I would actually say this for all humans, will correlate how one is speaking with the message. So if I go into the nursery tomorrow and say, God loves you! My one-year-old, who doesn't understand hardly any words, she understands some, but not many, she's going to take that tone and say, what is he talking about in her mind, right? God's not loved. God is angry, right? But if I go to her in her little one-year-old life and say, God loves you, Adra, I'm trying to exude the love that God shows to me, to her. So what we speak and how we speak it should be in the same manner. That's what I'm trying to get across here. And I think this is what he's saying. He says seasoned with salt, and this is not uh, talking about preservation, but it's actually the addition of taste is what he's getting at here, that the way a believer speaks of the gospel should make it appetizing, right? That it should bring forth beauty and love. And hear this, I know, the gospel is a stumbling block in itself. Calling people to repentance, showing them sin is a stumbling block. But let the gospel be the stumbling block by itself not the language in which that we speak about it or the way that we present ourselves one theologian says that paul envisions a church expected to hold its own in the social setting of a marketplace meal table etc to win attention by the attractiveness of its life and speech that when we live when we speak church we are called to do what 1 Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3 says, live with gentleness and respect. Church, in a text like this, that's pretty heavy on let's try to live in a certain way out of what we have been given in Christ. I never want to leave us there, right? I always want to take us back to the reason that we do this, right? That we all are called to a missional life because of the love and grace that has been given to us in Christ, And we'll look at this next week, but we actually see that we are a mere vessel of God's grace to other people, that we do not save other people. You can do all the things that I just said, but if the Holy Spirit is not present and moving, they will not be saved. That it is only through the work of Christ, applying the work of Christ, that they can be saved. We'll talk about the role of prayer next week in evangelism and how important it is, but we need to see here that Jesus himself actually reflects, or we are called to reflect who Jesus is in all of these things. That Jesus actually did walk in wisdom towards outsiders, and he did make the best use of his time. That Jesus went to the lowly, the outcast, those who needed a physician from his own words. He spent time with the woman at the well, the tax collector in the tree, the bleeding woman, the lepers, the blind, the lame, the outcast that Jesus made the best use of his time by fulfilling the law for you and for me and all the while being punished for our breaking of the law so that we could be free to experience his grace and mercy. That Jesus' speech, it was always gracious. It was always seasoned with salt. i called to the worship this morning from Matthew 11. He called people to himself. He said, come to me. All who labor and are heavy, laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He brought rest to the weary soul giving healing through his work of redemption. Jesus was always prepared to make a defense but yet he did not defend himself so he could defend you and me from the punishment the shame of our sin. That is the reason of our hope in that very truth that He gave Himself up for us. He died to defend us from the penalty of sin and death. Jesus was slandered. He did die with a good conscience, knowing He had completed the work of His Father, so that you and me would not be put to shame by our own sin. But we may be free to live. his life, his death, and his resurrection. So church, as we are called to this missional life, to go out in every sphere of life, to live for Jesus, it is a mere reflection of what he has done uh, for us. So let the work of Christ on your behalf be your motivating factor to do these things, to live on mission for the Lord. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are so faithful to us that uh, despite our many shortcomings time and time again, you continue to pursue us. You draw near to us when we run away. Uh, You use us despite our many shortcomings. And Father, we do pray that this place here at Christ the King that we would be a hub of grace in our lives. Father, that in all that we do, in word and in deed, will reflect the work that you have done for us on our behalf. So as we come to your table now, my prayer for all of us is that we would reflect on that beauty, what Jesus has done for us, what he continues to do as our mediator and what what he will one day do in making all things new. Father, be with us now. In the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.